Without further ado, hello and welcome to the latest in the Balderton Capital podcast series. I'm Ben Goldsmith and I'm here with Jack Rivlin, CEO and founder of The Tab. Welcome to the podcast. Hi Ben, thanks for having me. A pleasure to have you, pleasure to have you. We'll start with the big news. You have had some awesome numbers come in about The Tab today, this morning. Could you tell us about those? Yeah, we've just broken our traffic record, um, which was previously 5.2 million unique users in a month. And it is the 20th of the month, and we passed that. We're aiming for six or seven, which would be great. Normally, six or seven million meetings in a month is the target. That's the target awesome. now. I mean, the target was to do five again, but it's exciting because normally we're on the 31st of the month, huddled around a screen, refreshing <laughs> Google Analytics, and we just beat the record. So it's nice to have one where we sail past. Is there a particular reason why you think this month has been your explosion month? You've done it with 10 days to go. Well, I... We've been doing a lot of different projects and they fitted together quite nicely. The UK is very established and still growing. A lot of our US universities are starting to mature one year after they were launched. I think that's been a big part of it. And we've got BABE, which is our women's site that we launched in the summer. And that's starting to mature, although it's only four months old. It's starting to get much bigger. And it's kind of come together nicely. I see a lot of BABE on Facebook. You know, friends sharing articles from BABE. And I, I remember talking to you about a month ago and I didn't realise that Babe was was the tab in a different form so congratulations with that yeah it's great I mean I've had virtually nothing to do with it so (laughs) I would credit Roisin Lanigan uh, and others uh, on our team who was it their idea is that how it came about yeah we over the summer said let's experiment with some verticals because university term time is over and we want to publish some stories we've got loads of really good people five out of seven of our contributors in the US are female so naturally, we, we thought that would be a good idea to focus on the female space. I think we still feel that, as with many areas of the media, media aimed at women is still quite patronising, quite product and celebrity focused, and not that focused on the real lives of people aged in their early 20s or late teens. So we wanted to do something for them, and Roisin came up with the name and the branding, I think, and then he Sinhali designed the logo, but it was a big team effort. and. Yeah, the outtake's been incredible. It's taken me by complete surprise. Awesome. So you've had a lot of firsts that we've already discussed. You've broken your traffic record. You're aiming for six, seven million for the first time. Baby's doing awesome. Only launched this summer. That's what I'd like to talk about on this episode is, of course, you're a young guy. Uh, You started the tap how many years ago now? Well, at university, it was seven years ago. There was a brief hiatus. We were first funded four years ago. There you go. So everything's quite fresh, quite young. And also, I'm not saying you've never had a job that isn't uh, you know, either editor or CEO of the tab, but let's be honest, you've had to do a lot of learning on the job, I would imagine, the first time you raised funding is with the tab, the first time you made hires, I would imagine, was with the tab. So I'd like to talk about how you do that, how you know you're approaching something for the first time, what happens when you do it, <laughs> does it go wrong, does it go right, what do you learn, those kind of things. And to kick it off with something that is very much editorial, very much about journalism. Do you remember the first story, the first time you hit publish on anything on the tab? Yeah, I remember we we spent six months at university getting various bits of gossip together. <laughs> and I worked really hard on a load of stories that I thought were really worthy. And then we published eight at the same time. And the one that went big was about a goose which was attacking people, but was called the killer goose. And I remember (laughs) 
I had really mixed feelings because I was delighted by the amazing uptake and we were hitting a decent audience from the beginning. But I also remember thinking, I can't believe all my journalistic efforts came <laughs> to a goose topping our traffic board. <laughs> that is uh, genuinely surprising. Because what were the other eight stories, do you remember, or not, if not all eight? Was there something that you thought, this is real journalistic merit and they yeah, were think, overtaken think, by a farmyard animal? I seem to remember some big investigation into funding of a new college, and then there were there were quite a big, you know, there were a few pieces of writing that I was obviously very proud of the prose of, which looking back on, I cringe, but <laughs> I kept online, it's quite fun to look at. I probably thought those were going to take Cambridge by storm, because we launched at Cambridge University. Yeah. Obviously no one cared about them, but the killer goose that was attacking rowers went on to be a sensation. <laughs> and another thing I wanted to ask you was, was that the first story that caught the attention of the national newspapers because something that the tab has done very well and continues to do is capture um, the attention of the traditional national media picking up stories from the tab whether they are real or fake <laughs> they're always real <laughs> so that Nick Griffin one wasn't it stripped oh actually degree, sorry he did deliberately as a spoof right that was an April Fool's spoof story yeah. and we said that the BNP leader had his degree taken away and <laughs> it was picked up by nationals which was really good fun um, the first, so there were there was a batch of stories in the Nationals about us launching because I, we launched very much as a kind of loud sort of satirical tabloid because it was obviously oh so clever for Cambridge students to read a tabloid, and that got quite a lot of attention. And off the back of that, we had a story picked up, which we ended up being <laughs> threatened with legal action for, which was about a, a children's TV presenter in the UK, and I, I won't name him. We published a story that was, you know, pretty defamatory, uh, saying that he was very drunk, that he'd been gaffer taped to a wall and people had chanted his name and that he was bug-eyed and sweaty after a night of heavy drinking. <laughs> we published these pictures. Anyway, we didn't know what the hell we were doing. And, uh, I mean, we really, really didn't. We, we were breaking stories and having fun and he was there, but I think we got very overexcited with people's accounts. And when we published the story, he emailed saying, look, guys, I get that this is a bit of fun, but take it down please and we ignored it and then two national newspapers picked up the story the mail and the independent and ran it and the thing like blew up in our faces and this was in our first month i was 19 i think wow. no idea what i was doing uh, and we kind of negotiated okay we published an apology that is so groveling it's now taught on journalism courses i regularly see people posting pictures of it that's how to do an apology or yeah, how just, not to. this is what happens when you get it wrong no. it's just a, <laughs> You know, a long series of admissions that what we published wasn't the case. So that story wasn't true, and that was actually our first big bit of uh, national pickup. I, you know, it was a huge error, but we were students. I probably learned more about reporting and running a business at that stage than I'd expected to learn in the first year. Because when you launched the tab, what when you know when you first after that six months of planning that you had, what were you aiming to do? What was like the mission? of the town because I'd imagine it wasn't, you know, in seven years time we're going to be a VC funded media company. What was that first? Obviously, Ben, I think I was bored and angry. Are we? <laughs> I'm like 19 year olds at Cambridge, can you imagine a more entitled group of young males than them? And I think I thought, oh, I'm going to launch this thing, everyone at Cambridge is going to care about it. Actually they did, which was amazing. And then I will glide into a job as the deputy editor of the Times or the Sun. <laughs> And I'll be running the show on Fleet Street. I really wanted to be a, a reporter. 
and I think I thought this was my like shortcut to it and that I'd completely worked out digital media. And it was really exhilarating when it worked, but I don't think there was any vision beyond just winding up a lot of people I didn't like and catching everyone's attention at Cambridge. Interestingly, my co-founder, George Morangos Jules, said at the very beginning, I think this could work everywhere. I think we could take this to America, which we subsequently did. But I was like, no, mate, I just want to wind people up in Cambridge and make a name for myself. <laughs> and that has somewhat changed in the last seven years. <laughs> the mentality has grown up. Um, you preempted another question, which is, I was going to ask, when was the first time you noticed that you'd done something wrong? Because that is, I think, it's uniquely intertwined with both journalism and startups. That startups very much acknowledge that they get stuff wrong the whole time. And when you're... Journalism is the business of reporting on things publicly and sometimes giving opinions. Mm. And they are either considered to be wrong or, <laughs> or they can be wrong. So you've kind of preempted that. But when was the first time you had public criticism? Was that what you've already mentioned or was there another day one? Um, <laughs> I, it's hard to really appreciate now how much less reviled tabloids were because after that phone hacking scandal, the scandal came out, people really shifted their appetites towards online anyway. But back then, I used to read The Sun online for sport because mail online didn't exist and there wasn't really the same sources and tabloids still had a bit with some exceptions, I don't think anyone in Liverpool feels this way, but a bit of a fun, cheeky reputation. So we thought it was incredibly funny. You know, I'm from London and fairly, like, you know, I've been lucky in life, so I probably had no appreciation of how other people looked at this. We launched this tabloid, I expected everyone to applaud us and think it was funny. Obviously a huge group of people at Cambridge and outside of it turned around and said, this isn't funny. This isn't clever, it's not witty or ironic, it's just childish. And I think they were partly right. We were very immature, we really want to wind people up. I think people take life too seriously in general and they overreacted. But pretty early on we were like, okay, maybe we've got the tone a bit wrong in places. Everyone was reading the tab, but quite a lot of people were probably, it was a guilty pleasure at best for a lot of people. And we realised early on that we probably needed to produce something that people were a bit more proud to be a part of, rather than just something that wound people up. You know, I'm quite proud of how strident our journalism is, but there's a difference between that and just pissing people off because it's amusing. But it seems that you've kept a little bit of both. Like, there is brilliant journalism coming through the tab. Like, the last homepage story I read was about people storming out of a lecture, students storming out of a lecture or seminar in Texas because this lecturer, seminar leader, had espoused the very much received the out of Africa theory that that is where all humans are from, from Africa. And yes. some people walked out because they didn't like that theory. Yeah, That's great, right? People need to know about that stuff. That's very manful. And then there are other more frivolous articles. There are a lot more frivolous articles. I, I think it's possible for a news organisation to do both. I actually think to, this is a very... Uh, a lot of people don't agree with this viewpoint about journalism, but I do genuinely believe that a lot of frivolous stuff, really light-hearted stuff that is about, you know, even like, which Pokemon is your university, which is not journalistic, it's just fun. I think that kind of stuff is interesting and fun and enjoyable, and I think it supports the ability to break stories about 
how much racism there still is on American campuses, which is something we're pretty obsessed with. And again, talking as someone who came from a total London, Oxbridge bubble, I didn't even realise until I went to America that these issues existed. And I think being able to do the fun stuff is what makes your business viable often. And it allows you to do these kind of is that as, as as an editorial publication that needs audience and readership? Yeah, I mean, it's possible to do it the other way, and I applaud it. But I think the kind of journalism we want to do, the fundamental thing for us is a lot of people, including me, want to write stuff that's quite frivolous and quite fun, sometimes. They also want to break really important stories. I think it's possible to do both. I think companies that do both are more in touch with people's appetites, and are more human. And especially for students, like thinking that through, I remember when I was a student... <laughs> Well, terribly long ago, but I remember when I was a student that, of course, students are deep thinking. They're studying something, so they'd like those big, important stories. But also, I had a lot of fun as a student. A lot of things were frivolous. Mm -hmm. So it seems that students potentially are a particularly receptive audience for that double-pronged approach. Almost. Yeah, I think so. The dream story is the one that you mentioned in Texas because it exposes injustice. It's really interesting, and it's doing loads of traffic right now across America. It's been used that I don't know who would have broken that. Yeah, I mean, we certainly feel that we, the reason we exist is because there is, the media is totally saturated by people covering the same stories. There's people bashing out content as cheaply and quickly as possible based on what they've read online. We want to break stories no one else does. We think that young people don't hate the media, they just don't understand why the media talks down to them and it talks about them like they're laboratory subjects. If you get young people to report on their own communities, you find out way more about them, and it's certainly more interesting to the people in that demographic. And, you know, universities, I think it's interesting. I, I read articles all the time by men, always men, in their 40s, complaining about how students are too puritanical or dislike freedom. You know, they, they extrapolate ridiculous views about young people based on stories that often aren't true or exaggerated. It's time for young people to at least talk about what being in their world is like. And if we're so worried about what's going on in universities, then I think you need a news organisation reporting those stories. That's where we come in. So you're obviously very passionate and have such a clear view of what the TAB culture is and what the TAB does. When you made your first hire outside of the early TAB team, what was that process like? Because it seems the TAB's a bit of a family, especially you know your co-founding team and your very early... Uh, team members, how did you how did you go about that process, and do you think it was successful? And how did you imbue them with this kind of tab? What it is to be at the tab? Yeah, it's really people ask us a lot about it because we're lucky that a lot of people we hire have been involved with the tab as student editors for sometimes two years. So when they arrive, they don't need training, they don't need persuasion that things matter. I mean, they need some training, but. In the basics, they know the tab really, really well. And on the editorial side, that's meant that we're able to hire really, really good people really, really easily. And that's incredible. We've obviously had to extend beyond that. We arrived in America last year with, you know, sorry, it's not exactly an immigrant's rights to riches story, but you know, <laughs> we, we didn't have any writers. So we had to hire people, tell them about the tab. That was much harder, actually. And likewise, in other areas, you know, sales for example, it, it takes time to get the right kind of people because you're fundamentally doing something new that you don't even know that much about. I think the first hires were 
easy when they're editorial and as soon as it was anything else it was it was just a let's talk about that because it seems yes you're quite right almost the nature of the tab when you have lots of student writers and editors etc they get familiar with the tab before they go inside to the tab team potentially however hiring your first salesperson or sales team that must have been quite a a leap yeah it was i mean actually (laughs) until recently our long one of our longest serving employees i think he is our longest serving uh, Alexander White was our one of our salespeople, very good one and uh, bloody good rep. And uh, he, I met him at Glastonbury. George and I met him at Glastonbury. Uh, kind of friends of friends sort of thing, but you know we were obviously not in the frame of mind where you're thinking about hiring a sales team. <laughs> and we got talking and uh, you know spent quite a lot of the weekends together. It was, it was good fun. And he then became our first sales hire. And was really, really effective, and we knew each other well. That still felt like quite a kind of early stage startup hire. To be honest, our really impressive salespeople hires who haven't come out of this family were hired very, very recently in the last few months. I mean, a really good example of someone we hired well through our old system is Charlie Gardner Hill, who's our COO. Yeah. And he joined to work on graduate recruitment sales. He had edited the tab for us in Durham. But he just knew it. He just knows the tab. And he's obviously an exceptional talent. But this doesn't make him get poached. But, <laughs> you know, he's really, really good. But he knew the tab way. So it's only been really recently that we brought in other people with external knowledge. To be honest, there are massive upsides to that. They've got experience in other companies. They bring a whole load of expertise and talent. Um into the business it's just you have to spend longer on the hiring process and that's interesting because there was obviously a moment when the tab uh, I'm not going to say stopped fueling itself with its own people because it still is I'm sure there's still editorial team members that are joining from universities and things like mm-hmm. that however there was a time when I guess it switched from being the initial slightly frivolous fun project uh, that you set up seven years ago you and the co-founding team set up seven years ago at Cambridge and it turned into a business. Mm. Was was that gradual or was there some kind of, you know, made up eureka moment when you realised, blimey, I've got a business on my hands. We we have to run this, we have to run a proper ship now. I think when Balderson invested, <laughs> I'm not just saying that, it was a huge change in how we viewed it. Because honestly, until that point, it was funded with angel money and some very good angels, but we were really just doing whatever we wanted and that felt like a big growing up moment I would say the hardest moment though or the hardest period in the history of of the short history of our business has been the switching from fun founders project to business I think we adapted a lot more slowly than other businesses that I look at and I think that's partly because it's our first business and we didn't really know how to adapt that Um, and partly because it was such a kind of founders you know, slightly family project. I mean, I actually don't like the idea of a company's team as a family. I think it kind of promotes the wrong ideas. I think a team is a better way of thinking of it. But certainly at that time, it was quite kind of family and we all, you know, we still get drunk together. But <laughs> it, it was it was being run in a way that was not particularly business-like. Not that it was bad, but, you know, we then had a big adapting period where I guess some people describe that as scaling. I don't really think it's the right word in our case. But we introduced more functions and we professionalized. And frankly, it's taken the last year to 18 months to really, really nail that and get it right. And it feels like now it's in a really good place. It was massively complicated by going to America at the same time. 
because being in two countries just multiplies some of the complications. When was the first time you knew you were going to America, that this the town wasn't just a UK thing? Again, when Baldus and Ambassador, I, we, were <laughs> gonna raise, we were gonna raise a sort of, I never know the terminology for these things, but a sort of large angel round of like a million pounds, I think. And then uh, we met with Saranger and discussions with Baldus and went really well, and Baldus and Invested. And that was on the basis that we would go to America. So this was like May of 2015, not that long ago. And George, my co-founder, being who he is, said, right, let's get on a plane tomorrow. And I was like, oh, God, I really don't know if I can face this immediate total change in my life. But we basically did it. I mean, I had to stay back a bit longer and George kind of back and forth for a bit. But we sent two guys, Matt McDonald and Brad Vanstone, out there the next day. And they emigrated to the U.S., and they, you know, they came back a couple of times for stuff, but basically that was it. With a day's notice, they and moved to Who were to those guys? Were they? So Brad was headed up growth marketing in the US, yeah. and and Matt is the US editor, so I charge the editorial there. And he went with a day's warning. It was quite a weird period. You know, it was really sudden. And I remember thinking, God, we did that really unprofessionally. We turned up there, slept on people's sofas for like three months. I shared a bed with Brad for a month, and I shared a bed with Yoshi Herman, our editor-in-chief, for five weeks, a room with no windows. And I look back and think, God, that was so amateur. But actually, people often say that was probably the right way to do it, because you just got stuck in rather than wasting time planning for a year. And also, I hear plenty of startup stories like that, you know, from <clears throat> every industry, from uh, enterprise software through payments, people uh, bootstrap, shall we say, for a good while at the early stages. It was, uh, looking back, it... I look back at it really fondly. I probably could have done without the bed bugs, but otherwise, <laughs> And how's the USA going, in your opinion? Really well. I, we have got a really good team there, and it's taken a year to really understand how we want to do the US, and the last couple of months have been insane. I just feel like things have really, really clicked. We had a good summer. But we're never, and although we want to do well in summer, we're never really going to judge our business off the performance in August and July. The months we really care about are September to May. Turn time. Turn time. And it's been phenomenal. This month we've just passed two million uniques for the first time this month. There's a chance we'll do three. I don't want to hang my reputation on achieving that, but <laughs> we've got ten days to do it. And it's cool. For the first time we're bringing in people from other publishers as well. So we brought in Amanda Ross has come from the Odyssey, which is a kind of similar similar business. They've gone in a slightly different direction but they're in a similar space, and she's had an amazing immediate impact, so that's been really good. And I suppose, as a last question, as I notice we're running out of time, we've talked about a lot of firsts, first time we went to the US, first time we raised funding, etc., etc. What's next for the tab, do you think? What's on the horizon? Question I fear the most. <laughs> uh, Ask me in a month. We've, yeah, exactly. we've got a lot, we've got a lot of um, growth to do in the US. We're at 70 universities. It's not so much that we want to be at 2,000 universities, but we want to steadily increase that. And there's a hell of a lot more penetration we need to get at those 70. In the UK, go to a campus. Anyone knows the tab. Ask any student. They know the tab. It's a household name. In the US, we're not there yet. We're, we're getting there, but there's a lot more work to do on that. That's kind of our, you know, our, our obvious focus. And then the more kind of long-term focus is... Babe has shown us the power of what we can do with our very best contributors if we connect them to an emotional 
emotionally engaging brand, babe, you know, appeals yeah. to a certain group of people. And I think that has opened up all kinds of interesting possibilities around what we can do in media which isn't just locally focused, but which still draws on our strengths of working with the most talented young journalists in the world. A fantastic note to end on. Thanks very much, Jack. Thanks very much, Ben.